Okay, we're looking at James, and uh, tonight we will, I think, be able to get the video running at the end of, of tonight. We couldn't last week, but uh, Russ was in here, and we got everything, I think, fixed right. And so I'll be greatly surprised if it doesn't work for us this evening. Um, but first, let's go to James 1, and the approach that we have been taking as we look at James and his wisdom for our lives is uh, looking at it in the way that, in fact, uh, this video, which is about kind of the structure and how James fits together, suggests, and that many students of James suggest, and that is that chapter 1 is somewhat of a uh, rough index of subjects that are treated in somewhat more detail in chapters 2 through 5. That's a very short little book. And in chapter 1, we'll have anywhere from uh, 1 to about 3 verses that uh, focus on a particular topic. And then when you look later in chapters 2 through 5, there'll be anywhere from 5 to 13 verses. So it's, it's not like any particular subject is treated at great length. And it doesn't seem like the book is, uh, is tightly constructed with some mysterious... Uh, way of putting it together that we're supposed to understand. But it does seem, uh, in a broad sense, that chapter 1 introduces a lot of the themes that are picked up in the rest of the book. We have covered the uh, first part of chapter 1 down through uh, verse 11. And through that, we have jumped over and covered a good deal of chapter 5. And the uh, end of uh, ch chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4, I think is right, that we covered last week. Tonight, I'm going to go ahead and skip to verse 19 and following. And we'll, we'll see. If we, if we have time tonight, we go, may go back and pick up uh, some verses 12 through 18. But uh, we're going to continue with our basic procedure of looking at these sections that sort of introduce things that come up later in the book for more extended treatment and do uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, and then use that to lead us into chapter 3, uh, things that are said there about the tongue. So look, let's look at chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. This latter part of verse 19 is probably one of the most memorable pieces of the book of James. And uh, you might have already been able to identify that it came from here and be familiar with uh, being quick to, to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. I want to focus, first of all, on the notion of anger. He says we shouldn't become angry because human, right, human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. 
as we look around a room like this with, I don't know, 65 or 70 people in it, we probably have 65 or 70 people in the room that have gotten more angry than they meant to at one time or another in their lives. And some of us that find it pretty easy to do. There's kind of a little trigger that gets very easily pulled in tense situations. I was in a situation that was a little bit tense yesterday and I could feel, feel that anger kind of coming up and I was trying to push it down. It was coming up and I was pushing it down. Um, any of you recognize that? Yeah? So, so James says that anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Is that uniformly true? Is it always true that anger is the wrong reaction? Is, is all anger sinful? Okay, we got, got no. What, what kind of anger would not be sinful? What? Righteous anger. Who do we think of when we think of righteous anger? Jesus, right? Yeah, we always think of Jesus. Now, a few weeks back, um, Eric talked about anger in our tree, you know, the, the tree of the seven deadly sins, and anger was one of those seven deadly sins. And Eric surprised me a little bit when he said, there's only one time in the Gospels that anger is explicitly attributed to Jesus. And it wasn't the one time that all of us think of first. What's the one time you think of first when you think of an angry Jesus? Yeah, you think of him cleansing the temple. In fact, um, I was not in the room when this happened. Some, somebody in this uh, room might have been there, but back at the old Highland Street, 25 years ago or so, we did a vacation Bible school that was based on different events in the life of Jesus, and we, we did it in separate rooms. Like you go into this room and you'd see this scene from the life of Jesus, and you go into this room and you'd see another one, this room and see another one. And one of them was the cleansing of the temple. And so we had a guy acting as Jesus going in for the cleansing of the temple. And I understand that it was really exciting when the room was full of three-year-olds. <laughs> he went in there and turned things, turned tables over and shouted and whipped his cord around. The three-year-olds all started crying. <laughs> so they're going to be able to remember really well that Jesus got angry. So, so there's not, uh, in, in that text, it doesn't say that Jesus got angry, but he sure does look angry to me. And he looks angry apparently to the majority of us. When, when somebody's thrashing around with a whip, they're turning over tables, they're cutting animals loose and letting them run around and saying uh, that, you, that this was to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you made it a den of robbers. That sounds angry. 
And it's what most of us would give us the definition of righteous anger. So do you ever feel righteous anger? So, so most of the time, what we feel is not righteous anger. Most of the time, we feel something else, something that comes from our own pride and not from uh, conviction that God's will is being thwarted here, then we can somehow do something to change that. I mean, what, what would be the right kind of motivations for righteous anger? I, I suspect most of us would, if we thought about it for a while, we'd say, well, yeah, I, I have felt righteous anger. And we could point to it at least a few times. Yeah, Ephesians 4.26, if you want to turn there, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So he seems to be thinking there of an anger that could turn into sin. But is it sin and maybe when you first feel that kind of swelling up, you put and you and you hopefully push it back down. It's kind of like temptation, but not temptation that's been given into. But but righteous anger, I think, uh, would be injustice. I think was something you mentioned. Yeah, that uh, if you feel anger over the way someone else is being treated. It, righteous anger could perhaps be focused on injustice towards you, but fundamentally not. It's fundamentally focused on injustice towards someone else. And all of us have surely felt some when someone close to us experienced a great injustice or was terribly mistreated, and we felt an anger that we might describe as righteous anger. I think, I think that's an excellent point. In fact, one of the things I was thinking about moving to is, is how do we deal with anger? Whatever the source of the anger to begin with, whether it's a, a righteous anger toward injustice committed toward somebody else, or whether it's an anger that comes from pride, our pride is hurt, our feelings are hurt, and we want to strike back. Um, how do we deal with not letting it fester into a sinful act? I, there's not, as I can, can see, in terms of just anger per se, there is about sin in general in many ways, but in terms of the, the main verses in the New Testament, at least, that deal with anger, this passage, Ephesians 4.26, uh, the a demonstration of Jesus' anger uh, in the cleansing of the temple. And the other one where he's specifically said to be angry is when a man comes to him with a withered hand in the synagogue in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5. But then there's also the little section in the Sermon on the Mount. So turn over to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 it says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
And anyone who says to his brother or sister, Reka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Does anybody have a, a version that says, I tell you, anyone that is angry with a brother without cause will be subject to judgment? The King James, yeah. I knew anybody in here, if you have the King James or the New King James, you'll have the little phrase, without, claw, without cause. And that little phrase is in some pretty old manuscripts, but not our best. Our best and oldest manuscripts don't have it. And it, it seems logical to most who are trying to make this decision that not, not only is it not in our best and oldest manuscripts, but also it seems more like something that a scribe would add than something a scribe would take away. If it already said without cause, it's harder to figure why some scribe's going to leave that out. But if it just said anyone who's angry at his brother is in danger of the judgment, you can see why a scribe might put it in because they want to say, well, well there are just causes. So without cause, we'll, we'll put that little phrase in there. And it seems to have, by the way, surfaced by the third century AD. So Origen knows about it. Origen doesn't think, Origen was a, a church father in the early third century. And Origen doesn't think it's the right way to read the text. Already at that point, he says, no, I don't think it's said without cause. But he was aware of some manuscripts that said that and made a remark about it that many centuries ago. So, so that reading's been around a long time. But I, I think other than the King James and the New King James, nobody else in here would have without cause. You just have a point blank statement about not being angry. Um, so these are the main passages about anger. There, there are obviously passages about the wrath of God that would be about his anger, but about human anger. It's a couple of times when Jesus, the Son of God, expresses anger. And then this statement in Matthew 5 where he talks about it, over in Ephesians 4 where Paul talks about it, and then here in, in our passage. But none of them give the advice that we might give our children or our spouse or our neighbor as to how to handle anger. What kind of advice do we give? And some of it's pretty good common sense. It's not given in scripture, but. Count to 10. That's probably the most common, some, some form of counting, some form of delay where instead of just jumping right on it, you, you count. I could have used the count to 10 method yesterday and would have helped. I, I didn't actually spout off, but I felt it coming. I managed to, to stop. Unfortunately, I did get a little tremble in my voice. You ever do that? You're trying to hold, trying to hold it in. Your voice starts wavering. It's a telltale sign that something's going on in your heart that you can't, 
control fully. Count to ten. Any, any other advice? Walk away. Walk away. Yeah. Walk away. Don't say anything. Time out. Yeah, which is sort of like tape, talk, uh, sort of like walk away and sort of like count to ten. It's it's putting some kind of space in there. And all that can be called the discipline of silence. You give your, you keep your mouth shut and let your mind think of a consequence before you say anything. Think about the consequences. That's another really good piece of advice. Think it through and think what the consequences are for the friendship, for the relationship with your spouse. There's probably nobody in this room who's married who doesn't have things that they said to their spouse that they would do anything to take back. At some point or another, if you, if you haven't done that, you're a better person than me, and probably the 99% of us. You mean even today? Huh? Oh, today. <laughs> Let's hope it wasn't today, but it might have been today. And a lot of times, what you're angry about does need to be expressed, right? If you don't express it, if you just keep it to yourself, it can fester and get worse. And that's one of the reasons sometimes we blow up, blow up over what seems to be absolutely nothing. It's because even though that at the moment might be nothing, there's a lot of somethings that have been tucked in underneath it and it finally erupt. I think it needs to be said that people are turned differently. Uh, it'd, be a lot of, it'd be a lot more of an egregious sin for me to get angry than it would be for some other people. Because I'm just kind of a laid-back guy. Yeah, all of us are different. And some of us are tighter, strung, and, and it's easier for us to get mad. I heard a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, David Lipscomb was going uh, out in the country somewhere to a meeting, and uh, there was a man with him. They were driving a team of mules to get there, and the mules were not acting right. And uh, the man I noticed that David Lipscomb's starting at his neck up, started turning red and he began to grit his teeth and the, the fellow said to him brother Lipscomb you need to control your temper and his response between those clenched teeth was I'm controlling more temper than most people have <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good that's good and that, that does remind me of another time we get mad driving <laughs> somebody cuts you off you may say things you would never say <laughs> other than that moment. Things come to mind. If you're in the car by yourself, you may say things you wouldn't on any other occasion. Say, you may hit something with your fist. You may do something really stupid with the car. I, I, one thing that's really stuck in my mind is about three years ago, I was in Chicago with a a uh, church member there, and he was driving me around Chicago, and there were some people that kind of cut in, and I said something, you know, about how irritated I was, and he started telling me that he considered controlling your anger when you're driving a spiritual discipline. <laughs> and you know, that really stuck in my mind. It is a spiritual discipline.
and, and you can get better at it. And it might save your life to be better at it. The way things are getting these days. That makes you very nervous very quickly. I was in an incident, the girls were small, when I saw a guy pull around a, a girl in a car, stop right in front of her, jump out of the car, and start hollering. I thought, I mean, these days, this was 20 years or more ago, longer than that. When my girls were small, I was longer than 20 years ago. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, it was a long time ago, and I didn't think anything about him pulling out a gun and shooting him, shooting her. Now I would. Now I would think I'm about to witness somebody get killed. I thought I might be about to witness somebody get hit. But uh, things are, are changing. Well, let's, let's go uh, back a verse uh, to the beginning. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Trying to teach ourselves that, aren't we? And, and that obviously points to chapter 3. And you're familiar with the first part of chapter 3, so let, let's read it and talk about it a bit. Let's get the first verse, because I don't want to talk about it. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. We put bits into... He uses all these examples of how something really little can have a lot of influence. We put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, and we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, back in the day when they used sails, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Again, an illustration of something very little it has a tremendous impact. And this impact, unlike the rudder or the bet, is a negative impact because it's setting it on fire and destroying stuff. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's about as negative a statement as you can get about the tongue. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. There's probably the other most negative verse about the tongue. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig, be, fig tree bear olives or grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce 
fresh water. So he's talking about all these inconsistent things that in nature actually couldn't happen. Fresh and salt water flow from the same spring. A fig tree bear olives, a grape tree, a grapevine bear figs, a salt spring produces fresh water. But the tongue, it produces praises and curses. Praises God, curses human beings, makes a mess out of things. And so he says that um, if you can control your tongue, you can control everything. That's pretty, that's pretty strong. But again, we've all had trouble with it. We've all had trouble with, with this thing. We ought to keep it in the cage more often. Put that cage on there and not let it go. Um, whether in anger or other kinds of uh, statements that we make. What do you think about this passage about the tongue? It's obvious and everyone knows what it means and we'll go home and do it. Some of the advice we've already talked about would work. It's helpful. Count. Time out. Walk away. Other thoughts about how to control? And, and Freddie, you, uh, the same thing about anger would be true about tongues, right? Yes. You do talk a pretty good bit. Oh, you I and I, I both do. I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything I don't do. You and I talk more. I can go around the room and pick some people who don't talk much. And there are some of us that talk a lot. Jay talks a lot. Those of us that talk a lot, we have more trouble controlling, not messing up, right? I, w I wouldn't think it's a sin in itself, as when Paul says, be angry but sin not, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's kind of like he, he's talking about an anger that, and it, it's kind of like, in, in my mind, it's to like talking about uh, temptation or lust. There's, there's a certain initial impetus that you maybe can't do anything about that comes into your mind. But then you can let that fester or not let fester. You can focus more or focus less. You can go ahead down that thought path or you can pull off of that thought path and start trying to fill your mind with other things or asking God to help you with that. And it, it does seem to me that anger in itself could become sinful and that it can lead to not just an act like taking a baseball bat and hitting somebody, but to words that should never have been spoken. I mean, I know you would, you would obviously acknowledge that. It could, there are different ways that, um, that anger could, could sort of fester into sin, but I would agree with you that the initial impulse may be kind of unavoidable and just a part of being a human being. I mean, did, I'll, I'll ask a, a question that maybe get some of you ups, upset. Did, did Jesus ever have 
what could have been an inappropriate anger thought, but then he curbed it. Did he have an inappropriate thought about a woman and then control it before it became what you could call sin? Or do you think he was above and outside of? To me, he's not above and outside of those kind of things, or else he is not tempted like as we are. Yeah, in all ways. So if he, if he doesn't have, he doesn't have to have every kind of, you know, like I've got my temptations and I know what they are, and one of them's not getting drunk. I've, it has no appeal to me. Other people it would have a lot of appeal to. Some people, I mean, we have different temptations, but he's got to have at least the variety of human experience and the possibility of, of his gut nudging him into something that then he, he, we don't always know where the line is, but he is able to keep back from the, the line of going too far. And if I asked you to raise your hand, if you knew somebody, if there was somebody in your life or in your family who never says, I'm sorry, I think we'd get 100% of the hands. And that's really stupid. You don't want to be a person like that who is a person who never says they're sorry. <laughs> so there's another recommendation we hadn't heard yet. Carry a tongue depressor. Just in your pocket. <laughs> Mary says it doesn't always work. Yes, there is. Psalm 37. Psalm, so if you... If you didn't pick up on all of that, and uh, this, this coming Sunday morning in here at the end of service, Larry is going to lead everybody in here in repeating that passage by memory. Um, I'm actually making a joke. On, enough of you don't attend this service. In this service, at the end of the service, there's about eight to ten verses that everybody says with Larry. Not quite that many verses, so. Not the whole of Psalm 37. Okay, we're going to look at this uh, video. And again, as I mentioned before, uh, just kind of uh, hold on tight because I'll just go back here and punch it. It's going to work tonight. It's going to work. Alan, how many people would you say are probably here tonight? I was guessing 75. How many? There were 66. That's the reason I was wondering. 66. Well, I gave it a preacher count. You can find this and outlines of all the books in Scripture at the Bible Project. I can tell you from experience, you can watch this 10 times and you'll still be picking up stuff. It's fast and furious and has a lot of stuff in it, both in the artwork and in the things that are said. So be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Have a good week.